Welcome to Music History Monday for June 26th, 2023. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is You've Got to Be Kidding. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. Fessing up. Okay, you're going to have to bear with me for one of my idiotic tangents, one that nevertheless explains precisely how I feel about Mozart and his music at a gut level. What follows is a deep confession, something I've never shared before. Be forewarned, though, that once you've read and or heard this confession, depending upon whether you're reading Music History Monday as a blog or listening to it as a podcast, it cannot be unread or unheard. Here goes. Since childhood, I have had a deep and abiding affection for horror films. The gnarlier, the nastier, the better. Yes, color me juvenile if you must, but there it is. Among the very greatest masters of the genre is the American filmmaker John Carpenter, born 1948, whose oeuvre includes such classics as the Halloween franchise, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., Christine, The Fog, Assault on Precinct 13, They Live, and Prince of Darkness. But for my dinero, Carpenter's magnum opus is The Thing, which was released in 1982. Critically panned when it first opened, it is today considered by those of us who consider it at all to be a masterwork of graphic, on occasion inadvertently comedic, over-the-top horror. In 2008, the British film magazine Empire designated The Thing as being number 289 on its list of the 500 greatest movies of all time, calling it, quote, a peerless masterpiece of relentless suspense, retina-wrecking visual excess, and outright nihilistic terror, unquote. It is an appraisal with which I wholeheartedly agree. Starring, among others, Kurt Russell and Wilford Brimley, with a musical score by Ennio Morricone, the thing tells the story of a group of American research scientists on station in Antarctica and their horrific encounter with an alien presence, the thing itself. The thing's thing is to consume, assimilate, and then imitate other life forms, and as such, the members of the station, who, as we would expect, are picked off one at a time, are overcome by paranoia, not knowing who or what among them is the thing. I would suggest that the real star of the movie is its Academy Award-winning special effects director, Rob Botton born 1959, 
whose other movies include the original RoboCop, The Fog, the original Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Basic Instinct, and The Fight Club. The Thing was filmed 42 years ago at a time when computer-generated imagery, or CGI, was still in its infancy. So, pre-CGI as it is, using entirely analog methods for its special effects, meaning prosthetics, food products, moldable rubber, and mechanical devices, Botten and his team managed to create some of the most memorable, grisly, and frankly comic special effects ever. We cut to what is the single most famous scene in the movie. The surviving members of the Antarctic research team believe that R.J. McReady, played by Kurt Russell, has been assimilated by the thing, and they lock him outside, there to presumably freeze to death. But R.J. breaks into the station, and he holds the others at bay, holding dynamite in one hand and a lit flamethrower in the other. While this is happening, a geologist named Norris, played by Charles Hallahan, appears to have a heart attack. The station physician, Dr. Copper, played by Richard Dysart, attempts to revive him using a defibrillator, only to have his arms chomped off when Norris's chest opens up to reveal shark-like dentistry. McReady, still holding the flamethrower, toasts the Norris thing, though while it barbecues, it manages to detach its head, sprouts tentacles and antennae, and then spider-like attempts to toddle off before it is spotted and incinerated as well. The scene is linked. Watch it at your own risk. Should you do so, please be aware of the last spoken line beginning at 3 minutes and 29 seconds. Once again, that last spoken line uttered by an incredulous mechanic named Palmer, played by David Clennon, on seeing the Norris Thing spider attempting to scamper away? You gotta be effing kidding! This is, given its context and in my estimation, one of the greatest movie lines of all time, right up there with, I'll be back, and... I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And, go ahead, make my day. And, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And, say hello to my little friend. And, here's looking at you, kid. And there's no crying in baseball. You gotta be effing kidding. Describes perfectly my reaction to Mozart the composer and Mozart's music. You gotta be effing kidding. And there it is. There it is. I cannot think about Mozart's insane talent or revel in his otherworldly, perhaps alien music, 
without seeing in my mind's eye that magnificent hysterical and hysterically funny scene from John Carpenter's The Thing. Am I messed up or what? What? Okay then. A monster in his own right. On June 26th, 1788, 235 years ago today, Wolfgang Mozart completed the score of his Symphony No. 39 in E-flat major, Kerschel 543. It is to my ear and mind, with no exaggeration or hyperbole intended, a virtually perfect work, with the utmost of respect to the magnificent Joseph Haydn, Mozart's Symphony in E-flat major is the most exquisitely constructed and expressively sublime classical era-styled symphony in the repertoire. I would suggest that had any one of us completed such a work as Mozart's Symphony in E-flat major, four movements in length and roughly 27 minutes in performance, we would collapse, gratified but completely spent, having just committed roughly four or five intense compositional months to its creation. Ah, but Mozart did not commit months to the composition of his E-flat major symphony, but rather days, something on the line of 12 to 14 days from start to finish. You gotta be effing kidding. As for being physically and spiritually spent from the effort of composing his E-flat symphony, well, in fact, the dude was just getting warmed up because having completed his F major symphony 235 years ago today, Mozart went right back to work. Over the course of the next 29 days, he wrote out the score of his Proto-Romantic Symphony in G minor, Kerschel 550, completing it on July 25th. On the following day, July 26th, 1788, he began work on his next and final symphony, his epic and monumental Symphony in C major, Kerschel 551, the so-called Jupiter Symphony, finishing it 16 days later on August 12th. From start to finish then, Mozart composed, or at least wrote out the scores of his final three symphonies, in the opinion of many, the greatest symphonies composed in the 18th century, in just six weeks. We are told that there are no crossouts or revisions in the manuscripts. Working with a quill pen and ink, Mozart simply wrote out the scores of the three symphonies one measure at a time from beginning to end. Okay, all together. You gotta be effing kidding. How did he do it? How could he do it? Driven batty by Mozart's inexplicable genius, observers from his time to ours have offered up all sorts of often loopy explanations. That he was the Christ child of music, sent to earth to bring artistic redemption to humankind before returning to God's bosom at 35. That his father Leopold, 
had made a Faustian deal with the devil, that he, Wolfgang, received his skills from a magic ring acquired in Naples, that he was autistic, that he was an alien. Personally, I'm good with the alien explanation. Here's what we know. Mozart claimed to have composed his works in his head. The act of actually notating the music on paper, copying out, as Mozart called it, was a necessary last step, but not for him part of the actual compositional process. Having said that, and contrary to popular myth, Mozart did indeed occasionally make sketches, especially when working out particularly complicated passages. But far more often than not, he created his works in his head and not on paper. When Mozart was composing something relatively simple, like opera recitatives or ballroom minuets, conception and notation occurred simultaneously. According to his wife, Constanzi, at these moments Mozart composed music, quote, as if he were writing a letter, unquote. Then again, according to Constanzi, quote, when some grand conception was working in his brain, he was purely abstracted, walking about the apartment and knew not what was going on around him, unquote. In a letter to his father, written while he was finishing the composition of his opera Idomeneo of 1780, Mozart wrote, quote, Well, I must close, for I must now write at breakneck speed. Everything has been composed, but not yet written down, unquote. Mozart's musical memory was so highly developed that he retained entire works of music, note for note, in his head. Yes, that's just a bit scary, and no, I'm not kidding. On April 8, 1781, while he was staying in Vienna just prior to his break with the Archbishop of Salzburg, Mozart wrote his father, quote, Today we had a concert where three of my compositions were performed, new ones, of course, a rondo for the violinist Antonio Brunetti, an aria for Ceccarelli, which he had to encore, and a sonata with violin accompaniment for myself, this would be the G major, Kirschel 379, which I copied out last night between 11 and 12. In order to finish it, I only wrote out the violin part for Brunetti and retained my own part in my head." Unquote. This sort of thing, well, it happened all the time. In his Anecdotes of Mozart, published in 1804, Jean-Baptiste Antoine Suard wrote, quote, It came about one day that, having to do a piece for a court concert, Mozart had no time to write out the part he was to play. The Emperor Joseph, happening to glance at the music paper which Mozart appeared to be following, was astonished to see nothing but staves without notes. And he said to him, Where is your part? There, said Mozart, 
putting his hand to his forehead, unquote. Okay, were these sorts of stories merely hyperbolic fantasies created in the years after Mozart's death to grow his legend, as some have argued over the years? Nope. There are far too many of them, and the vast majority of them come from contemporary and not posthumous accounts. In fact, Mozart was the ultimate multitasker, able to compose a new work in his head even as he copied out a different one on paper. For example, on April 20th, 1782, he sent a newly composed prelude and fugue for piano to his sister with the following cover letter. Quote, I send you herewith a prelude and a three-part fugue in C major, Kerschel 394. The reason I did not reply to your letter at once was that on account of the wearisome labor of writing these small notes, I could not finish the composition any sooner. And even so, it is awkwardly done, for the prelude ought to come first and the fugue to follow. But I composed the fugue first and wrote it down while I was thinking out the prelude." Unquote. Such stories are legion. Here's another. We know that Mozart copied out the overture to his opera Don Giovanni on the morning of its premiere on October 29, 1787. But a story circulated at the time that Mozart actually had three complete overtures to Don Giovanni in his head. According to the story, the singer Luigi Bassi, who premiered the role of Don Giovanni himself, and Mozart's friend, the Prague-based pianist Franz Ducek chose the overture in D minor after Mozart played all three of them on the piano. The other two overtures were never copied out, and thus, if they indeed did exist in Mozart's head, were lost. Unfortunately, there was a downside to Mozart's phenomenal memory, as we cannot know just how many works he had only in his head when he died at the age of 35. According to the German music historian Hermann Ebert, whose monumental biography of Mozart runs 1,515 pages in length and is roughly the size of my wife's all-electric Chevy Bolt, quote, given Mozart's dislike of writing anything down, it is entirely natural that a large number of his works were simply never written down. Strange though it may sound, only a part of his oeuvre has survived. The rest he himself kept from us." Unquote. As if we didn't already have enough things to keep us awake at night, we now have that nugget to contemplate. No kidding. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.